Sorry if I'm cutting our welcome time too short. I got, I got, someone got on me last week, and so I, I try to look at my clock. I try to give us at least 10 minutes, but I can, I'll start doing more. I don't, I don't want to break everybody away from good conversation. Fellowship is, is good and important and a beautiful thing. Um, so I think this will be sort of our last sermon before we start getting to the encouragement. But Paul is still kind of laying this on pretty heavy. He's wanting to make a point that we are sinful creatures. And he, to me, like, this, this little section, it hit me like a shot to the stomach this week. It was, I mean, this is like, how bad can we get? I, I, didn't, I forget how bad we can be and, like, how much mental gymnastics we can do to try and justify our sin. And he points it out, like, really, really, really blatantly. Um, and so I don't usually put a title on sermons, but this one is that our sinfulness knows no limit. Um, and so, and it got me to thinking about, like, my kids and, they, you know, so I've been, Jennifer's been out of town and I, we kind of barely crossed ways. And so I've been with the kids just for, like, barely 24 hours by myself. And I'm, like, catching them do stuff and they're like, well, I was, you know, Elizabeth was getting something out of the pantry she knew better than to do. And I was like, what, what are you doing? Like, oh, I was just getting you a snack, Dad. Like, <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You know, it's like. We're caught in our sin, and so we try and find a way, right? Like, where's the loophole? How can I get around this? I, I, I know I'm wrong. I've been caught. What do I do? How do I, how do I try and find a way um, to make it look, you know, not quite so bad, right? And so Paul asks these questions, right? And the questions are exactly the way that we think. Um, we, and, and, really, and I say Paul, but really, I mean, God wrote this, right? God, God inspired Paul to write this because God knows the way that we think. God sees when we sin and when we try to finagle our way out of it, right? We get around it. We're asking questions. We're trying to shift the blame. This is what we do. And so it's really, really interesting, some of these questions he asked, right? So back in chapter 2, he, he gives this long argument at the end, and he says, look, what is the value of circumcision? What is the value of being a Jew? And he says, well, those outward signs don't do anything for you, right? They're, they're, that's not what brings salvation. That's what, what makes you righteous. That is not what justifies you. And so he starts chapter 3 by then saying, okay, so if circumcision is a matter of the heart, if it's internal, if it's about how you feel and, and, and what is your attitude towards God, it doesn't matter what nation you call your home, it doesn't matter who your parents are, it doesn't matter all of those things, well then he asks this question, so then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And after we just read what we read in chapter 2, the answer that I'm sure if you didn't know what was coming next would be, well, then there isn't any. There is no value in these things. And then Paul says and makes an extremely important statement. See, our instinct would be to say, there's nothing. There's no value. If it doesn't get me anything, then there's no value to it. I don't care about it. If I'm not going to receive some kind of a reward or if there's nothing good coming to me, and this is what Paul is pointing out, our own sinfulness, right? If God does something, well, where's the reward from that? What am I seeing? What am I getting back from this? If I'm not getting anything for myself, then it must have no value. And Paul makes this statement 
much in every way. First, or foremost, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They have God's word. Nobody else on the planet had the oracles of God. God entrusted Israel with these things. And even though their circumcision didn't get them righteousness, it didn't justify them, Paul says, God is telling us here, you, the Jewish nation had, had every advantage because God gave them His Word. He gave them His law. He gave them His oracles. The pagans, they worshipped their own man-made gods, right? They bowed down to nature, they bowed down to statues or animals, or they trusted in the things of this world that we see as finite and broken. They were worshiping everything but God. But Israel had God's word. Israel had a direct message from the one and true God of the universe And it was written down for them, right? To be able to read, to be able to memorize, to be able to pass down to their children. They have every advantage. You see, the reason that when we meet here and we look next door and we take pity on the people who are over there in that building, it's not because we have a better building or we have softer seats or better coffee or a better preacher. We have the Word of God and they don't. We have every advantage because we have this And they're reading something completely different. That's where our advantage comes from. Is that we have God's word. We stand on it. And because of that. Do you hear hear me? Every advantage. Not just some. Not just in parts of our life do we have an advantage. But over here, well, we're, we're on par with everybody else. But everything in your world, in your life, you have an advantage over the non-Christian. Because you have God's revealed word to you. Every decision you make, you have an advantage. Every relationship you have is better because you have God's word. Even down to the end of your own life, you have an advantage. Because when we die, where we, we know where we're going when we trust in the Lord. There's, I mean, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is still fear. I'm young. I haven't got to that point. I've never had a near-death experience or anything like that. But I, I'm sure there's a little bit of fear. But even after that fear subsides, we know where we're going. We have assurance that God is going to bring us into his presence forever. We have every advantage. And my question to you this morning is, do you actually believe that? When you read verse 1, was your instinct to say, well, then they, they have, there's no advantage to the Jew. There's no value in circumcision. It didn't get them anything. They didn't gain anything from that. So there must be no value to it. But they have God's word. They have everything at their fingertips. They have every advantage. We have every advantage because God has continued to preserve his word for thousands of years that we get to sit here this morning and read it and be confident that this is God's revealed word. And so my question once again is do you believe that? Do you live your life in such a way where you you recognize everything in my life I am at 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 an advantage because God has given me his word? 
What's interesting is I grew up going to church. So my parents were not believers when they were kids. They, they became believers when they were adults. My dad came out of Jehovah's Witness. My mom came out of, what do you, the Easter and Sunday crowd? I mean, Easter and Christmas crowd. Like, they went to church twice a year. That was it. My grandparents were not believers on either side. So my parents came into adulthood not really understanding the Bible, not really being discipled, none of that, right? So when my sister and I went to a VBS many, many years ago, right, and we were like, hey, we want to go to church. And my parents were like, okay, I guess, that's one, you know, can't hurt. So they're like, okay, we'll take them to church. So my parents didn't have any ability to discern, and so I grew up in a very, very, very liberal church, preached a lot of things that are not biblical, and I didn't, I didn't know it either because I'm a kid, right? My parents don't know it because they're brand new Christians. And so we're growing up under really bad teaching. And then because I didn't know any better still, I grew up. And so I was like, well, I want to be a youth minister. And so the, I was like, I'm going to go to this college. And the college I went to, also very liberal. The seminary I went to, also very liberal. Not knowing any of these things, right? Not ever really being exposed to a lot of good teaching. And so just every step along the way. When I was in my formative years of learning the Bible and learning what it means to be a Christian, I was taught really, really bad theology. And I stand here today believing basically none of it, right? Not because some other person came into my life, but because I have every advantage. I have a Bible, I can read it, and I can understand it. And I would read it and be like, wait a minute. My Old Testament professor at Baylor University, of all places, right, a Baptist school, told me that nobody before David was a historical figure, that they were all allegory, right? This is a Baptist seminary that I'm going to, right? None of those people existed. This is how God taught the people. And in that same school, I was taught open theism. Anybody ever heard that one? God doesn't know the future, right? This is a Baptist school. And so I'm being taught all of these things, but I had God's word. I was able to read God's word and be like, that's nonsense. That's foolishness. This is not okay. This is not what the Bible says. Even in the midst of really bad teaching when I was younger, we have every advantage because we have God's word right in front of us. Now, I admit, some of it is a little hard to understand, and there's going to be things you might have to look up and, and think for more than five minutes to try and figure it out. But most of the Bible is pretty clear. We can look at it, we can read it, if we stop and think for even a half an hour, the Lord, if we don't understand it, a lot of the times will reveal these things to us. And so we have every advantage because God has given us his word. I, if I thought I could get away with like an eight minute sermon, I would just stop right there, right? Because this to me was like the thing. Because when I read this, I just thought, I, they don't have any advantage, there's nothing, they didn't gain anything. And the Lord just like, I mean, he humbled me in such a big way because what we get when we get God's word, right, is that we get all of these things that we wish Jesus hadn't said, right? We read Jesus's words. I'm like, oh man, I really wish you would have left that one out because that's extremely difficult to follow. Our life is harder in one sense because we have God's law and yet we have every advantage because we have it. last thing I'll say on this, it's really important. So for some reason, God made a choice to, bring, to, to, to teach us through the foolishness of man, through the foolishness of preaching, right? Um, the power is not in me standing up here or the things that I am saying, but rather the power is here. And so that's why I would never, ever, ever think that I would... Uh, 
that like the, the things that I'm preaching are inherently good, right? Or inherently truthful. Like everything that you hear from this pulpit or from any pulpit or from any sermon or anything you read outside of the Bible has to be tested back against this, right? The power is not in the preaching. The power is in God's word. And this is true across the board for our church, for everything, right? The power is not in the program, but the power is in God's word. Awana is a hugely important and successful and good ministry that this church does. But if there weren't, if the Bible weren't being taught to these children, if all they did was gather together and play games and eat snacks, it's worthless. The power is not in the program, right? It's in God's word. The power is not in the songs that we pick. It's in God's word, which is why... We can listen to Christian radio and hear a really good Christian song and like it, but recognize that's probably not great worship song, right? Maybe it's talking about us, or it's not, if it's not praising the Lord, then we don't want to sing it, because the power is in God's word. It's about what we are doing in those moments, and so the power is not in anything that we do, but anything in this church that is based on scripture is good and powerful, and anything that's not, we should Seriously think about discarding, right? Everything is based on God's word. We have every advantage because we have been given God's word. Okay, next thing. Paul talks about the integrity of who God is. And so he asks this question. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? What a question. What if some were unfaithful? Everybody is unfaithful. We're all unfaithful. All of Israel was unfaithful. Other than Jesus Christ himself, every human being that has ever walked the planet has been unfaithful at some point in their life. It seems like an unnecessary question, right? Why, why even ask it? Because once again, Paul is pointing out that our sin knows no limit. You see, he starts to, starts to build this argument that we as humans fall into as a trap, right? What, what if we were unfaithful? It doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. God doesn't break his promises no matter how unfaithful we are. Just let that settle in for a minute. Everything that you have done has given God cause to turn his back on you and me. We have all done thousands, millions of things, sins in our life that, would, that God rightfully and justifiably should have turned his back on all of us because we are unworthy of his love and his presence. And yet, God is faithful. In the midst of our faithlessness, when we fail and we sin and we go back on God's word, God's promises ring true no matter what we do. He loves us. He will forgive us no matter what. So if you're here this morning and you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, your stress is above your threshold. Everything is coming crashing down around you. God is faithful. He will never lie. His word will never fail. His promises are always true, no matter what. No matter what else happens in this world, he will take every burden. He will take every sin from you. That promise you can stand on no matter what else happens. No matter who betrays you or how badly they betray you, it doesn't matter. 
The Lord's promises are faithful. And then he quotes Psalm 51. Let's, let's go. We've got to read it. This is in response to David and Bathsheba, one of the worst things that David probably ever did, or at least the worst thing we know that he did. David and Bathsheba, Nathan comes to him, right? He points out his sin. He confronts him on it. And this is David's response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this is the part that he quotes, right? So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom and seek in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. That's what repentance looks like, ladies and gentlemen. When does David skirt what he did? When does David not not willing to take responsibility for the things that he has done? When does he make an excuse in any of that? Not once. Not even a hint of it. He doesn't even say, well, you know... Yeah, I did a really bad thing, but Bathsheba was bathing naked on the roof. Like, why wasn't she inside her house? I mean, come on. Like, there's a, there, I got to be able to pass the guilt somewhere. Or why did, you know, I invited her over. All she had to do was just say no and go home. Like, there's got to be some guilt on her. He doesn't do any of that nonsense. He takes all of it on himself and he says, God, forgive me. Turn your face away from my sin. That is it. That is the response. That is what repentance looks like. When we sin, don't try and play this game that Paul, that he brings out for us, right? There's so many things that we can read in this and be like, yep, I've been tempted to do that or I've done it. I've played these mind games where I try and shift the blame or God, my sin brings about your goodness. So shouldn't I just keep doing it? Shouldn't I just keep sinning because your goodness is going to then be exemplified? There's going to be a light shown on your forgiveness because of my sin. So really, is it all that bad? That's what we want to do. That's what we try to do. We try to justify. We try to move it. We try to shift the blame. We try to do all of these things. And we should be like David when we repent. Just Take responsibility, own up to it, and then cry out to the Lord for forgiveness. Remind Him of His promises, that He promised us He would be faithful to forgive us. 
even though David was unfaithful, he knows that God will be faithful. And even though we are unfaithful, we do the same. You see, this makes God justified in his words and he is blameless in his judgment. This is the, the half of a verse, right, that Paul pulls from that psalm to remind us that God is always going to be faithful even when we are not. And so then we see these verses 5 through 8. Just listen to them again. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict his wrath upon us. I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Our sinfulness knows no end. If we will allow ourselves to think in these terms, under these parameters, our sinfulness knows no end. You see, if my sin shows off the righteousness of God, why is he going to punish me for it? That seems wrong. That seems mean. How could we know the righteousness of God if sin didn't enter the world? You see, if you were perfectly righteous and God is perfectly righteous and we were all perfectly righteous, how would we know about God's forgiveness and his goodness and his patience and his kindness and his love? So we should just, God, consider it a blessing that we are so bad. That's the argument that's being made here, right? That's the argument that we want to try and do sometimes. Instead of being like David, we want to say, Lord, I'm doing you a favor by speaking mean to my wife. I'm doing you a favor by getting angry at my kids. I'm doing you a favor by cheating on my taxes or whatever it is. Because now your goodness can shine forth. What we won't do to try and find a way out of our sin. To the point where we are willing to blame God for bringing his wrath upon us for our sin. And even worse than that, Paul says that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us. It takes a special kind of person to look at God and call him unrighteous because of our sin. Do you see how backwards that is? Do you see how twisted sin can make our minds where we can convince ourselves that God is unrighteous for judging us for our sinfulness? That's what Paul is saying. Right? This is what we want to do. This is how twisted our brains can get when we fall prey to our sin. Nothing God does is unrighteous. And everything that he does is by definition righteous. Because he is righteous. Everything he does. We look at things in our life. And a lot of the times we want to blame the Lord. And maybe we don't use such strong language as this. I don't know that I've ever called God unrighteous. But I have had those times and those moments and those prayers and those thoughts. God, why would you do this to me? 
It seems mean. It seems unfair. Why me? Why are you doing this to me? Why is this hardship falling in my life? And we all have our own thing. Many of the times those things are good, right? For those who desire children, infertility plagues them for years. That's why Jennifer's not here, right? Her older sister, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, for more than a decade have been trying to have kids. They have a strong desire to bring kids into this world. And after 13 years, I think, they're in their 40s, the Lord blessed them. She normally wouldn't leave me with the kids for three days to go to a baby shower, but this is an important baby shower, right? Because for more than a decade, they're fervently praying, Lord, give us children. We want to have kids. And for whatever reason, the Lord didn't do it. And he waited and he waited and he waited. For those who are single, who want to be married, to find, find a spouse, right? For those who are dying before they're supposed to, this is what I get a lot because my dad is very young and he's sick and he's dying. And he's 65 and people say to me, oh, it's, such, it's so tragic because he's so young. As if the Lord had promised him a long life to 80 or 90 or whatever and then he took it away from him. I mean, and I know people are, there's nobody like saying this in a mean way. But like that's, that's the attitude we adopt just by the culture that we live in. Oh, that's so tragic. It seems unfair. We're quick to blame God when things don't go the way that we want them to. But remind yourself, right? Don't, don't ever walk into that territory where you would look at God and call him unrighteous for something that he has done. Whatever he does is righteous. God's wrath is also justified. And this is something that our world hates to hear. Our world doesn't want you, doesn't want us, anybody to tell anyone else that they are wrong about anything. And then when we go to the Bible and we say, not only does God call some of the things that the world is doing, that I'm doing, that every single one of us is doing, not only does he call it sin, but his wrath is revealed against that sin. It's not just that he looks and be like, ah, I'm disappointed in you, but we'll just, we'll kick that one under the rug and we'll, for, we'll just forget that ever happened. He sees our sin and his justice must be appeased. You see, God's wrath has been poured out. It will be poured out. And there is a choice as to where that wrath goes. Either that wrath is going to be laid upon you or it's going to be laid upon Jesus. If you believe in Christ, if you repent of your sins and you trust that his sacrifice on the cross was enough to appease God's wrath, that it was meant for you, that's what salvation is. It is our trust in the Lord that God's wrath is not going, for my sin, God's wrath is not going to land on me, but that it's going to land on Jesus. Because for whatever reason, I, I still don't fully understand why he would do this, but he stepped in front of me. When the father looks and he says, you're a horrendous, evil person, and you're a sinner, and you deserve to die. And Jesus said, I'll take it for him. Amen. I don't, I don't get it. I still don't get it. I just, I just accept the gift and say, thank you, Lord. I don't know why you would do this. 
I'm not worth it. There's nothing in me that, that makes me deserve that. And yet the Lord has done it anyway. You see, the wrath of God is real and it must be poured out. When you think about a judge, right, probably, I, I've seen several of these, like, short little video clips. I don't know where this guy is, but he's a judge, and he, people come before him, and they've got these, like, small traffic tickets, and he's become really popular. He's always, he's always doling out mercy on the, and, and, it's, and it's great, because it's like, oh, somebody ran a stop sign, and they were taking their sick so, so-and-so to dialysis or whatever, and he just looks at me, and he says, you know, he rips the ticket up, and he goes, and we look at it, and we say, oh, great. What a merciful judge this guy is. But even in these small things, we recognize that his mercy has to supersede his justice. Because in that moment, justice wasn't done. But then we see a court case, right, with somebody who's murdered somebody. How would you feel if that judge wanted to lay out mercy and not justice? Well, we heard the, we heard the facts. The jury has declared you guilty, and I'm in charge of sentencing You've been in jail for like four months for this trial. Just go. Don't do it again, please. Right? We would look at that and be like, no way. That's not an instance where we want to see mercy. Right? Because we are constricted by this. We can either be merciful or we can be just. But we cannot be both at the same time. It can't happen. One has to give in order for the other to come out. And so then we look and say, well, then how is, if God is both merciful and just, how in the world can he be both of these things in the same moment? The answer is Jesus, of course. When I was with my dad this week, my dad loves Jerry Clower. Anybody ever heard of Jerry Clower? It's an old stand-up comedian from, I don't know, 50s maybe. And he tells this story, and I heard it, and it's just great. He tells this little bit, right? There's a, there's a kid, and he, he's talking to him, and he says, he, he's telling him about how he goes to church, and he said, he said, I was in Sunday school, and the teacher said, you know, what's got a bushy tail, big teeth, chews on nuts, and climbs and lives in trees? And the kid said, well, I know the answer is Jesus, because we're in church, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. How can God be merciful and just? Well, we're in church. The answer is Jesus, right? The answer is Jesus. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. This has got to be one of my favorite expoundings of the gospel in the whole New Testament. I'm sorry, did I say Ephesians? I meant Colossians. I think I said the wrong thing. Colossians 2. I don't know if I said that, but that's where we're going. Colossians 2. Starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were, all, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God canceled our record of debt and he didn't just say, eh, we're just going to push it over here. We're going to put it in the back closet where we don't have to look at it and ever think about it again. God's justice has to be appeased and it's appeased by nailing your sin and my sin to the cross. In the person of Jesus Christ. Our sin demands payment. It must be paid by someone. If you're here this morning and you have fallen into the lie or the delusion that you will somehow be able to pay for your own sin, I'm telling you, it's impossible. You can't do it. Nothing you have ever done in your life can overcome the sin that you have done. But the work of Jesus can. If you're here this morning and you think, I'm going to take that wrath and I'll be able to come out on the other side unscathed, turn to Christ. Repent. Repent the way that David repents. Don't make excuses. Just fall on your knees before the Lord and say, Lord, please turn your face away from my sins. Forgive me. Blot them out. Wash me as white as snow. We don't have to do these philosophical gymnastics, right? We don't have to, well, maybe, the, maybe because of the badness, God's goodness will show, and maybe this and maybe that, and let's find a way. Let's see if we can find a loophole around our sin so that we don't have to repent, so that we don't have to swallow our pride and admit that we're wrong and admit that God is good and that we are bad. You don't have to do any of that. God, in his infinite wisdom, found a way to be perfectly just and perfectly merciful. So I ask you again, where do you want God's wrath to fall? If you recognize that you can't withstand it, that you can't endure that, turn to Christ and repent. He loves you. He wants to welcome you in. He wants to forgive you. He is waiting to bring you into the family of God. And that's all we have to do. If you're here this morning, go back and read Psalm 51 again. Look at the way that David repents. No excuses made. He just falls on his faith. He swallows his pride. And he repents. And he begs for forgiveness from the Lord. This is what God is calling all of us to. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are a just God, and we are so grateful that you are merciful, and that in your wisdom, you have found the perfect way for your wrath to be appeased and your mercy to be shed on those who trust in you. Lord, once again, we know that we don't deserve this, and we are so grateful that you would do this for us. Lord, help us to go out into this world, Lord, that that we would recognize your revealed word to us as every advantage, Lord, that we would take it, we would apply it to every part of our life.
And Lord, lastly, we, we are so grateful that your wrath has fallen on your son and not on us. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.